Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. Charles Lamb, author of Witches and Other Night Fears, said, Orgons and Hydras, Chimeras, dire stories about the harpies. They reproduced themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were here before. They are transcripts, types. The archetypes are in us, and eternal. How else should the recital of that, which we know in a waking sense, be false, and yet affect us all? Is it that we naturally conceive terror from such objects, considered in their capacity of being able to inflict upon us bodily injury? Or least of all, these terrors are of older standing. They date beyond body, or without body, they would have been the same. But the kind of fear here treated is purely spiritual, that it is strong in proportion as it is objectless on earth, that it predominates in the period of our sinless infancy, our difficulties, the solution of which might afford some probable insight into our anti-mundane condition. And a peep at last into the shadowland of pre-existence. The Dunwich Horror When a traveler in north-central Massachusetts takes the wrong fork at the junction of the Islesbury Pike, just beyond Dean's Corners. He comes upon a lonely and curious country. The ground gets higher, and the briar-bordered stone walls press closer and closer against the ruts of the dusty, curving road. The trees of the frequent forest belt seem too large, and the wild weeds, brambles, and grasses attain a luxuriance not often found in settled regions. At the same time, the planted fields appear singularly few and barren, while the sparsely scattered houses wear a surprisingly uniform aspect of age, squalor, and dilapidation, without knowing why. One hesitates to ask directions from the gnarled, solitary figures. Those figures are so silent and furtive that one feels somehow confronted by forbidden things, with which it would be better to have nothing to do at all. When a rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods, the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased. The summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness. And sometimes, the sky silhouettes with special clearness of strange circles of tall pillars made of stone look as though crowned in the light. Gorges and ravines of problematical depth intersect the way and the crude wooden bridges always seem of dubious safety. When the road dips again 
There are stretches of marshland that one instinctively dislikes, and indeed, almost fears at evening, when unseen whippoorwills chatter, and the fireflies come out in abnormal profusion to dance to the raucous, creepy, insistent rhythms of stridently piping bullfrogs, the thin, shining line of the Miskatonic's upper reaches has an oddly serpent-like suggestion as it winds close to the feet of the doomed hills among which it rises. As the hills draw nearer, one heeds their wooded sides more than their covered crown tops. Those sides loom up so darkly and dangerously that one wishes they would keep their distance, but there is no road by which to escape them. Across a covered bridge, one sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of round mountain. One wonders at the cluster of rotting cambrel roofs, bespeaking an earlier architectural period than that of the neighboring region. It is not reassuring to see, on a closer glance, that most of the houses are deserted and falling to ruin and that the broken, steepled church now harbors the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the small hamlet. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, yet there is no way to avoid it. Once across, it is hard to prevent the impression of a faint, malign odor about the village street, as of the massed mold and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills and across the level country, far beyond. It is only afterward that one sometimes learns that he has been through Dunwich. Outsiders visit Dunwich as seldom as possible and since a certain season of horror, all of the signboards pointing towards it have been taken down the scenery, judged by an ordinary aesthetic canon, is more than commonly beautiful, yet there is no influx of artists or summer tourists. Two centuries ago, when talk of witch blood, Satan worship, and strange forest presences was not laughed at, it was the custom to give reasons for avoiding the locality. In our sensible age, since the Dunwich horror of 1928 was hushed up by men who had the town's and world's welfare at heart. People shun it without exactly knowing why. Perhaps one reason, though it cannot apply to uninformed strangers, is that the natives are now repellently decadent. They've gone far along that path of retrogression so common in many New England backwaters. They have come to form a race by themselves, with the well-defined mental and physical stigmata of degeneracy and inbreeding. The average of their intelligence is woefully low. Their annals reek of overt viciousness and of half-hidden murders, incests, and deeds of almost unnameable violence and perversity. The old gentry, representing 
the two or three Armigerous families which came from Salem in 1692 have kept somewhat above the general level of decay. However, many branches are sunk into the sordid populace so deeply that only their names remain as a key to the origin they now disgrace. Some of the Whatleys and bishops still send their eldest sons to Harvard and Miskatonic, although those sons seldom return to the moldering Gambrel roofs under which they and their ancestors were born. No one, even those who have the facts concerning the recent horror, can say just what it is the matter with Dunwich. Although, old legends speak of unhallowed rites and conclaves of the Indians. There are rumors of forbidden shapes of shadow out of the great rounded hills. These were made wild by the strange prayers prayers that were answered by loud crackings and rumblings from the ground below. In 1747, the Reverend Abijah Hoadley, newly come to the Congregational Church at Dunwich Village, preached a memorable sermon on the close presence of Satan and his imps, in which he said, It must be allowed that these blasphemies of an infernal train of demons are matters of too common knowledge to be denied. The cursed voices of Azazel and Buzrael and Beazelbub and Belial, being heard now from under the ground by above. There are a score of credible witnesses now living. I myself did not, more than a fortnight ago, catch a very plain discourse of evil powers in the hill, just behind my house, where... There there was a rattling and rolling, groaning, screeching and hissing, such as no things of this earth could have raised up, and which must needs have come from those caves that only black magic can discover, and only the devil unlock. Mr. Hoadley disappeared soon after delivering this sermon, but the text, printed in Springfield, is still extant. Noises in the hills continue to be reported from year to year and still form a puzzle to geologists and physiographers. Other traditions tell of foul odors near the hill-crowning circles of stone pillars and of rushing, airy presences to be heard faintly at certain hours from stated points at the bottom of the great ravines. Still others try to explain the devil's hop-yard, a bleak, blasted hillside where no tree, shrub, or grass blade will grow. Then, too, the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous whippoorwills, which grow vocal on warm nights. It is vowed that the birds are psychopomps, living in wait for the souls of the dying, and that they time their eerie cries in unison with the sufferer's struggling breath. If they can catch the fleeing soul when it leaves the body, they instantly flutter away, chittering in demonic laughter. But if they fail, they subside gradually into a disappointed silence. These tales, of course, are obsolete and ridiculous. They come down from very old times. You see, Dunwich is indeed ridiculously old, 
older by far than any of the communities within thirty miles of it. South of the village, one may still spy the cellar walls and chimney of the ancient bishop house. This house was built before 1700, whilst the ruins of the mill at the falls, built in 1806, form the most modern piece of architecture to be seen. Industry did not flourish here, and in the 19th century, factory movement proved very short-lived. Oldest of all are the great rings of rough-hewn stone columns on the hilltops, but these are more generally attributed to the Indians than to the settlers. Then there are deposits of skulls and bones found within these circles, and all around the sizable table-like rock of Sentinel Hill. This sustains the popular belief that such spots were once the burial places of the Pocum Ducks, even though many ethnologists often disregard the absurd improbability of any such theory. It was in the township of Dunwich, in a large and partly inhabited farmhouse, set against a hillside, four miles from the village, and one mile and a half from any other dwelling, that Wilbur Wadley was born at 5 a.m. on Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1913. The state was recalled because it was Candlemas, which people in Dunwich curiously observe under another name and because the noises in the hill had sounded, and all the dogs in the countryside had barked persistently all through the night before. Less worthy of notice was the fact that the woman was one of the decadent Wadleys, a somewhat deformed, unattractive albino woman of thirty-five. She lived with an aged and half-insane father of her father, there were the most frightful tales of wizardry which had ever been whispered in his youth. Lavinia Woodley had no known husband, but according to the custom of the region, made no attempt to disavow the child. However, this concerned the other side of whose ancestry the country folk might, and did, speculate as widely as they chose. On the contrary, she seemed strangely proud of the dark, goatish-looking infant, who formed such a contrast to her own sickly and pink-eyed albinism. She was heard to mutter many curious prophecies, all surrounding his unusual powers and tremendous future. Lavinia was one who would be apt to mutter such things, for she was a lone creature given to wandering amidst thunderstorms in the hills. She tried to read the great, odorous books which her father had inherited through two centuries of Wadley's, and which were fast falling to pieces with age and wormholes. She had never been to school, but was filled with disjointed scraps of ancient lore that old Wadley had taught her. The remote farmhouse had always been feared because of old Wadley's reputation for black magic. There was also the unexplained death by violence of Mrs. Wadley when Lavinia was twelve years old, and thus legend made the Wadleys very popular. Isolated among strange influences, Lavinia was fond of wild and grandiose daydreams and singular occupations, though her leisure was much taken up by household chores and a home from which 
all standards of order and cleanliness had long since disappeared. There was a hideous screaming which echoed above even the hill noises and the dogs barking on the night Wilbur was born, but no known doctor or midwife presided at his coming. Neighbors knew nothing of him until a week afterward, when old Watley drove his sleigh through the snow in a Dunwich village. There he discoursed incoherently to the group of loungers at Osborne's general store. There seemed to be a change in the old man, an added element of furtiveness in the clouded brain. This somehow transformed him from an object to a subject of fear, though he was not one to be perturbed by any common family event. Amidst it all, he showed some trace of the pride later noticed in his daughter, and what he said of the child's paternity was remembered by many of his hearers years afterward. He spoke, I don't care what folks think of Lavinia's boy, whether he looked like his pa. He wouldn't look nothing like you expect. You needn't think the only folks is the folks hereabouts. Lavinia's read some, and has seen some things the most of ye only tell about. I calculate her man is as good a husband as ye can find this side of Islesbury, and if you knowed much about the hills as I knew, ye wouldn't last no better, no church wedding or hearing. And let me tell you something. Some day you folks'll hear a child of Lavinia's a-calling its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. The only people who saw Wilbur during the first month of his life were old Zachariah Wudley of the undecayed Wudleys and Earl Sawyer's common-law wife, Mamie Bishop. Mamie's visit was frankly one of curiosity, and her subsequent tales did justice to her observations. But Zachariah came to lead a pair of Alderney cows, which old Wudley had bought from his son Curtis. This marked the beginning of a course of cattle buying on the part of Small Wilbur's family, which ended only in 1928. This is when the Dunwich Horror came and went. Yet at no time did the ramshackle Wudley barn seem overcrowded with livestock. There came a period when people were curious enough to steal up and count the herd that grazed precariously on the steep hillside above the old farmhouse, and they could never find more than ten or twelve anemic, bloodless-looking specimens. Evidently some blight or distemper, perhaps sprung from the unwholesome pasturage, or the diseased fungi and timbers of the filthy barn, had caused a heavy mortality among the wadley animals, odd wounds or sores, having something of the aspect of incisions, seemed to afflict the visible cattle. And once or twice, during the earlier months, certain callers fancied they could discern similar sores about the throats of the gray, old, unshaven man and his slatternly, crinkly-haired, albino daughter. In the spring after Wilbur's birth, Lavinia resumed her customary rambles in the hills, bearing in her misproportioned arms a swarthy child. Public interest in the Wellies subsided after most of the country folk had finally seen the baby, and no one bothered to comment 
on the swift development which the newcomer seemed every day to exhibit. Wilbur's growth was indeed phenomenal, for within three months of his birth, he had attained a size and muscular power not usually seen in infants under a full year of age. His motions, and even his vocal sounds, showed a restraint and deliberateness, highly peculiar in an infant, and no one was really unprepared when, at seven months, he began to walk unassisted, with falterings which another month was sufficient to remove. It was somewhat after this time, on Halloween, that a great blaze was seen at midnight on the top of Sentinel Hill. There stood the old table-like stones amidst its tumulus of ancient bones. Considerable talk was started when Silas Bishop, of the undecayed bishops, mentioned having seen the boy running sturdily up that hill ahead of his mother, only about an hour before the blaze was remarked. Silas was rounding up a stray heifer, but he nearly forgot his mission when he fleetingly spied the two figures in the dim light of his lantern. They had darted, almost noiselessly, through the underbrush, and the astonished watcher seemed to think they were entirely unclothed. Afterward, he could not be sure about the boy, who may have had some kind of fringed belt and a pair of dark trunk or trousers on, Wilbur was never subsequently seen alive and conscious without complete and tightly buttoned attire, a disarrangement or threatened disarrangement of which always seemed to fill him with anger and alarm. His contrast with his squalid mother and grandfather in this respect was thought very notable until the horror of 1928 suggested the most valid of reasons. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.